Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. Hope everyone had a fabulous Thanksgiving holiday. I know I did. I had a rather memorable one. As the first time I was part of the Thanksgiving Day Parade. I think it's a day my kids especially will never forget. Uh, a little later in the show, we're going to talk with uh, Jake Neer, the legislative reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network, about what's coming up this month, the, le- the few weeks that the legislature is going to be around uh, before the Christmas holidays and the new year. We're also going to check in with uh, Steve Neveling of Motor City Muckraker uh, to talk about the fire department. Neveling has been following the fire department more closely than almost anybody in the city knows a lot about what's going on, what the problems are and what some of the solutions might be. We have a really interesting interview with him. But first, as Detroit's emergency manager, Kevin Orr, filed the city's bankruptcy petition, negotiated with creditors, and crafted the plan of adjustment, which was the plan for the city's financial future. Appointed by Governor Rick Snyder in March 2013, Orr left his position as partner of the Jones Day Law Firm in Washington, D.C. to come help us out in Detroit. Earlier this year, Orr worked as an advisor in the Atlantic City, New Jersey, bankruptcy, uh, uh, emergency management uh, reorganization. Now he is back at his former employer, Joins Day, and he joins us today as part of WDET's Detroit Bankruptcy One Year Later series. We're in the fourth and final week of the project, and this week we're focusing on the effects of the case going forward. Kevin Orr, welcome to Detroit Today. And Thanks for having me. And just one quick note. Um, Atlantic City never filed bankruptcy. That's not a bankruptcy. That's emergency right. manager. It's just an emergency <laughs> okay. manager. You saved them from bankruptcy. <laughs> That's what I should say. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. uh, so, uh, Kevin, I want to start with uh, I want to start with where you see the city now, a year after you left uh, and left us with a plan uh, that was supposed to keep the books balanced, uh, supposed to improve city services, and give us some room to grow, really, uh, to grow uh, population and things that would make finances better. Uh, Sitting where you do now, what, what do you think of what we've made of the last year here? Well, yeah, I mean, net net over the last year, and you have to give a little slack time, it hasn't quite been a full year. And I just don't mean that in terms of calendar years. I mean time to school up and get going. But net yet, all the early indicators are positive. The CAFR, that was a comprehensive annual financial report, um, had a positive spin to it. There's a surplus that's there in the city. Um, certainly the development, from what I'm hearing from developers, their ability to get plans approved and move forward are going. Uh, grounds being broken in all of the five uh, major infrastructure projects, the bridge over on the Canadian side, the new stadium. Um, I was there a couple of weeks ago. There's a big hole in the ground. That's going forward. The inland light rail is going. Uh, the nine square miles of downtown are thriving. Early indicators overall uh, net are good. Been some, um, been some concerns raised, of course, about the, the pension funding. Um, right. There were about, stories. There were stories a couple of weeks ago about uh, pension payments that would be due, and if I'm correct, 2023. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, that's exactly right. Nine years of pension fund payment hiatus uh, from the city are, are provided for in the plan, and some concern about whether or not the city should prepay those now so that they'll have time. I mean, there's a, there's a number of factors behind why that is. The good thing is it's a, it's an early bell. You know, it's an early klaxon, an early ring, so you have a good. Uh, uh, seven, eight, nine years to correct. As I always say, you look at financial markets, that's a, that's a good long time. So that's from my perspective. 
um, that's a good thing that people are paying attention to something now that's going to become due in 2023. Right. So overall, I think it's, it's, it's generally positive. There's always, Stephen, you and I have talked about this time and again, um, all the energy that's going on downtown is great. Um, it's thriving. I talk to people around the country and, and frankly, overseas. They want to come. Uh, the story in the neighborhoods uh, is a longer term story. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that balance between expectations and reality. Uh, and I think that was that's sort of the major theme uh, right. of, of, of the bankruptcy. Uh, there was a lot. The bankruptcy was afraided with a lot of things and expectations that it probably was never going to address. And so now we find ourselves in Detroit talking about neighborhoods and neighborhoods uh, getting better. Uh, really, the the bankruptcy was about setting the balance sheet uh, up to be able to do those things. It wasn't uh, it wasn't supposed to it wasn't supposed to fix everything that was that was wrong. But but in your role, uh, talk about the role of neighborhoods and uh, neighborhood services fixing the things that that are wrong in the city. How did you factor that into the things that you had to do here? Well, two, um, two things I'd focus on. One was try to balance it. I mean, one of the things we wanted to do to get to the neighborhoods early was, remember when we privatized solid waste collection? Because we wanted to clean up the city overall, not just downtown, but solid waste bulk as well as uh, periodic collection over the neighborhood. So we wanted to show that there were going to be changes. The lighting that has gone on. Some people have been a little chippy about whether or not they're losing the light in front of their house and that sort of thing. But overall, the lighting contract, which we got done early, on Detroit Lane Bank Authority is one of the first things we wanted to get that going on. But the, the real story here is in the neighborhoods is housing, right? Housing and values. And there are two really apocryphal stories. One was in your old paper uh, two weeks ago, the Washington Post, that was talking about here in D.C. where, you know, three years ago, um, and I'm just going to use race as a factor, it was pretty much balanced between black and white as to whether or not all the development going on in D.C., Shaw, UDC, Cardoza, Florida Avenue, uh, uh, those areas which were traditionally underserved were good. There was a re- report that came out, though, just a few weeks ago that found that the dividing line was of 15% to 55% white to black from those who thought that the development was bad for them. Only 15% of white folks thought it was. 55% of black folks did. And why was that? Because they felt that they were being excluded from the redevelopment that was going on in the neighborhoods. Sure. Now, that's after the, the D.C. Control Board has been over a decade, and it is just now rolling out to some of the neck areas, uh, some of the neighborhoods. So I, I say that as a cautionary tale to everyone in the city that the, the plan is designed to be organic, to be iterative, to change and grow over time, to be merged with, say, Detroit Future Cities, with the planning and zoning direction of the mayor, Mayor Duggan, and city council. But when it happens <clears throat> in certain areas, it is not always going to be meet the expectations of everyone. Yeah. And, and I think that if we study the way that has occurred in some other neighborhoods, if Detroit studies rather, the way that has occurred in some other neighborhoods, there may be an opportunity to, to adjust some of those concerns. Because I'm highly confident that downtown is going to continue to thrive. It's, it's virtually, it, it can't help but thrive, the amount of energy that's going on downtown. How do you get that out to the other 100? It's the old story, Stephen. 130 miles of city. How do you get that out there? 
Yeah. That's going to take some time. It's going to take some managing of expectation. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Kevin Orr, the former Detroit emergency manager, uh, the architect of Detroit's uh, trip through municipal bankruptcy. Uh, we're talking about the city a year after the city came out of uh, bankruptcy. What, uh, what has happened? Uh, what does the future look like? What's the trajectory that we're on? vis a vis where we started at the end of bankruptcy. If you have a question for Kevin Orr or a comment uh, about the bankruptcy, give us a call at 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. Uh, Kevin, I want to ask you about the, the something that, that still comes up all the time here. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, people ask me every couple of weeks about uh, democracy in Detroit, the interruption yeah, yeah. of democracy that, that was represented in the emergency management, and some of the things. Uh, that were that were pauses or interruptions in democracy that have taken place since, and and I'm thinking there specifically of your decision uh, to to strip the police commissioners uh, mm-hmm. here of of their power. That gets uh, brought up a lot of times as as an example of. Uh, uh, taking uh, choice and and decision making away from the people. Uh, talk about how you uh, talk about how you balance those things in your mind: democracy uh, versus uh, responsibility in terms of uh, finances and other things. And tell me why you made decisions uh, that uh, that left us with less of a citizen voice in some things than we had before. Yeah, I think that's fair. And let's talk about the police, for instance. I mean, most people, if you take a chance to look at the 2012 charter, uh, the only authority that the mayor, for instance, has over the police uh, chief is that the chief serves at the pleasure of the mayor. That charter shifted the authority for promotions, uh, discipline, adjustments to the police commission. One of the issues we wanted to deal with, police commission is elected, and we want to have a strong police commission, you want to have voice, uh, you want to have a commission, because remember, when I came into the city, the city was under two uh, Department of Justice consent decrees, use right. of force and confinement. One was 11 years, Stephen. One was almost a dozen years. Okay, this has been going on for a long time. We went out and we found Chief Craig, who was a profile in Courage, a native son of Detroit, who came in. And after seeing him work for a while, it became pretty clear to me that Chief Craig had the best interests of the city and the organization, but also he needed his own, in a sense, receivership to correct some of these structures that were in the department. And he did that. I mean, within the first eight months, the, the department and, and some of the early indicators of, of criminal behavior were going in the right way. There were good trends, no matter how anybody looks at it. My own personal balance as a longtime progressive, and, and I didn't do that lightly, was what would we need as a city in this extraordinary term with a police commission who had been alleged to have been in an illegal shoot, for instance, uh, Tamara Green, Strawberry, um, a police commission who had sat side by side with the prior mayor, Kilpatrick, and had facilitated some of his behavior well known. Um, Your paper had reported in some of the divisions, narcotics in particular, there had been serious questions about fraud and corruption. Um, In fact, I believe that department had to be restructured as own. This was a department that was under federal government supervision, that was under a great deal of scrutiny, that had engaged in, at least that had been alleged to have engaged in inappropriate behavior. There was an allegation that, in fact, a police shoot of another policeman in 2013, Officer Price, uh, there was an attempt to cover up that that was a friendly fire. What did we need to do to give Chief Craig the maximum authority that he could use in a temporary suspension of the commission's powers 
to straighten the department, get it back on course, and then send it back to the regular order. And so I, on balance, I made the decision that that was the right thing to do um, so that we would remove some of the overlay and some of the inertia, quite frankly. Um, the reality is, in some commissions, when you when you try to restructure quickly a, a martial organization like a police force, and I I talked with other police commissioners, I didn't, and other police chiefs, I didn't do this lightly without doing my due diligence. And they said, one of them told me, as a matter of fact, says Chief Craig has the greatest chief job in America today. He has complete authority, restructured department. Let's hope that he's a good guy. And it turns out that he is. So I, I understand people's concerns, certainly with the department that had two uh, uh, consent decrees. I understand, as I said over and over again, Steve and I have become very sensitive to the fact that the city had been gone through a long period of trauma. But it seemed to me that was the right thing to do to, to get the department right, it, get it back on its course. And that appears to be working. I mean, the reality is, um, for a chief to come in and, and, and drive the initial indicators of crime down by double digits in the first eight and a half months, we didn't go out and hire another 2,800 policemen. Those are the same same officers, yeah. and I want to commend them, and I'll tell you why. When I first met with them, their unions, I asked them, what did you want? They'd given a 10% pay cut. You said, you know what they told me? They said, we want to get out of, off of 12-hour shifts. We want to go back to eight-hour shifts. And why? We want to have hygiene time. We want to have time with our families. And we want to have court time to testify against the people we arrested. So I, I commend the force because they want to do their job. I commend Chief Craig. Um, I hope people understand that it's a temporary suspension and they can tolerate it. But on balance, I think it was necessary. Well, and, and the city council voted to restore... Uh, the police commission, I believe, in in September of of this year, and so we're going to go back uh, right. uh, to the old to the old way. The, the order had a limited time yeah. uh, for the commission, and that was just the right to ship. Okay, uh, let's go to the phones here. Uh, Dolores on the east side of Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Yes, I am. I am Dolores. I wonder how has that bankruptcy affected downtown? The bankruptcies. Uh, that has literally um, destroyed Detroit. How has it benefited downtown Detroit? Uh, uh, Dolores, can you be a little more specific? I'm not. I guess I'm not sure what what you. I'm wondering how much of the money generated from the bankruptcy affected downtown Detroit. Is there any input from the city's revenues? in the downtown effort. Okay. Uh, Dolores, uh, thank you for that call. Uh, Kevin, that's, a, again, a question that, that I think gets at a theme that comes up over and over here in Detroit, which is that the bankruptcy was, uh, was some sort of uh, conspiracy uh, yeah, yeah. To, 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 to benefit downtown and midtown, to benefit uh, new people in Detroit, white people who are moving in uh, at the expense of, of the African-Americans who have, who have lived here uh, for, for a very long time and whose neighborhoods are, are in awful shape. I mean, how do, you, how do you answer those questions when you get them? Well, Stephen, we started this discussion by me referencing the Washington Post story about what's happening right here in downtown D.C., um, which is thriving. It's got a billion-dollar budget surplus. Um, Center City, some of the other areas are off the charts, million-dollar condos. Certainly the concept, and, and this usually comes in, so let's just get it out there, gentrification, that is old-time residents being displaced by new younger, yuppification, trendification, whatever you want to call it, um, occurring downtown. And, and that is, I'm, I'm going to be very frank, more than likely 
um, going to play itself out some way in, in Detroit. That is not per se necessarily a bad thing, and I'll tell you why. The, the development that's going on downtown, all of those properties that are being built, the new tax revenue, the new uh, uh, density that's coming on, the, the parking that's going to be filled, the deals that we cut with Syncora and uh, Fidget to build, uh, fix uh, Grand Circus Garage and, and have development rights as well as on the old Joe to build a multi-use uh, apartment building are going to benefit downtown without a doubt. The issue becomes, how do you do that in a way that allows people who stuck it out for a long period of time, some of whom were not downtown? Let's, let's be honest. I mean, the reality is, when I came into the city in 2013, there are buildings that are being opened now that were shuttered for almost a decade. One of them across from the book Cadillac that now has a mural on the front of it right. was a, was a beat-down um, Quizno sub shop that had broken windows. Um, nobody had decided to develop that building at that time. That development is coming from a value proposition where people are anticipating that that growth, that turnification is going to make it worthwhile for them to do investments coming into the city. Those investments are going to yield positive revenue streams for the city. That is a good thing. The be- question because of that revenue, people- because that revenue ultimately can be used to provide more services uh, in the neighborhood. Our tax collection rates are going to go up. Um, from 47% when I came into the city, the national average is 98%, so we, we have a way to go. But that revenue is going to be used to make the buses run on time. That revenue is going to be used to clean the streets. That revenue is going to be used to make sure that the lights go up. That revenue is going to be used to make sure that police cars get rotated on appropriate time. Fire, EMS, so, all those things. So the city runs on an ordinary course basis. So one of the, the things I think Dolores was trying to get at is whether whether the wealthy investors who are coming into Detroit and uh, through downtown and midtown right now somehow benefited from the bankruptcy. In other words, no, no, they, there's no direct investment from there's no direct benefit from wealthy investors from from the bankruptcy. What the bankruptcy did was to change the value proposition to investors who previously would not have been looking at Detroit and made them, I would think, decide that it is worth me taking my capital, my money, my investment. As I said, for someone like like Dan Gilbert, he can go invest in Corfu or in in, uh, Paris if he wants to. I mean, these are people who have high liquidity. They can go do other things for their money. Now that the city, and a big component of this is the city government, quality of city government, the mayor and city council are working together. Now that that value proposition is there, it is worth it for them to come to Detroit. My question to people who raise that question is, well, what is, what is the alternative? Would you rather your city to have remained where it was without that value proposition and without that attractiveness to investors, and would I you think, rather your city to continue to have declined? And I think a lot of people would say, no, of course not. But uh, you know, the, the disinvestment that Detroit suffered at the hands of uh, state lawmakers in Lansing, at the hands of federal lawmakers in Washington over a long period of time, that was uh, a huge contributor to the insolvency that we faced. And so why, why, why is it that Detroiters had to give up their democratic voice uh, and and sort of sacrifice to make things work when a lot of the responsibility for it, I think, lies lies elsewhere. I think that's the question that people are yeah, asking. Yeah, but I, I think we have to be very careful with that, Steve. And a lot of the responsibility lies with the quality of management that the charters voted for. No question. I mean, you, that's also you had a big role. a mayor who had exactly the wrong time, Mayor Phil Patrick, who took his hand off the wheel and the city went sideways. And frankly, um, um, with that kind of administration, nobody would want to invest in the city. Why would they? 
Right. Why would they? Right. It, it doesn't make sense. So we all have to take responsibility for our actions. You just can't lay it at the feet of, of state government or lay it at the feet of the federal government. You also have to say we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. I mean, we, we elected a, a leadership cohort that was not good for us. And as a consequence, there was no value proposition to the private sector. By contrast, and to be complimented, likewise, you elected a leadership uh, group on a write-in ballot, I might add, for Mayor Duggan, who has brought in a high quality of oversight in government and has increased the value proposition in a very short time. So I think if you have to take responsibility for what happened in the past, the city should also take a little bit of pride in their ability to write themselves and make what appears to be a correct decision to correct some of those problems. But you can't just say it's, it's everyone else's fault but ours. I mean, cities have lives, cities have responsibilities, and at core, cities have to look at themselves and say, what, what should we do to make us as equal a value proposition as Chicago, as Los Angeles, as New York, as Washington, D.C.? You know, Atlanta had a theme. I went down there and met with some city council people a few weeks ago, and they were the city too busy to hate. They decided they were going to be cooperative with their – and they're thriving. They're thriving off the charts. But even in that guise, Mayor Kasim Reed had spent four years trying to deal with pension adjustments for his retirees in a lawsuit that he just won two years – two weeks ago. Right. So, so even in a city that has a cooperative as opposed to a confrontational um, uh, background – it takes some time to do this stuff. Yeah. And the fortunate thing is that the people stood up and made a decision. Right. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Kevin Orr, the former Detroit emergency manager who guided the city through the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. We're talking about one year later where we are, what has been achieved, what challenges still lie ahead of us. Uh, Kevin, I want to ask you quickly about uh, pension uh, oversight. Uh, one, of the, one of the real problems that we had going into the bankruptcy was that uh, the pension boards, particularly uh, for for regular city employees, not police and fire, uh, had sort of, uh, I mean, I think to to put it kindly, uh, been derelict in their oversight of of those funds, and and the city had not contributed the way it it should have have to to those funds. So we had these huge deficits in in the, in the, the projected payouts into the future. What has changed uh, with regard to that? Do you feel like that problem has been addressed in a way that it won't resurface again in the future? Um, I, I feel this way. I feel that that problem has been addressed structurally by having an investment professional investment manager. And I think certainly the, the pension board members now recognize that there's a great deal of scrutiny on how they're behaving. I mean, the reality is, Steve, there were four you know, pension board members who ended up going to jail and others that were implicated uh, for their defalcation and corruption. And, and we've recently heard about that. So we try to put that in the rearview mirror. But going forward, I think they have all the structures in place to benefit from appropriate investment protocols and, and mature decisions. You know, there's some people who make money like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates that the markets go up and the markets go down. They still make money either way. In fact, I think Bill Gates has just reclaimed the wealthiest man in the world over Carlos Slim because of his Microsoft stock. If you think about the investment protocols of some of those firms that they've been investing in Microsoft for the past 12 years, for instance, not an advisor, but for instance, some of that would have been recovered. So now that you have people in positions to make those kind of decisions and perhaps a more reflective and, and balanced 
um, orthodox manner, you have the time to make the corrections, to make up some of the underfunding, and to reduce the pension fund's uh, uh, commitment, say, for instance, on private equity, real estate, and alternative investments. At one point, the fund, the, the national average, I think, in real estate is supposed to be 10%. The fund was at 30% in those areas. Yeah. So, we, we, you know, you have to make those course corrections. They're doing it. They're doing it with the benefit of an investment advisor. Um, fortunately, there are people in the markets who make money, good, bad, and and and, uh, and, and, and ugly at any time. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they will uh, follow those indicators. Um, that being said, uh, <laughs> that being said, it still requires a steady hand on the tiller. So the structures are in place. It still has to be operated, and it still got to make sure we don't manage. dig the hole. Don't, again. don't squib. Yeah. Don't go sideways. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's take one more call before I uh, let you go. Uh, Martin in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today, Martin. Hey, how you doing this morning? Good. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. The reason I was calling, I uh, was trying to get an understanding of how is it that stripping a majority of black city of democracy has moved the city forward. And I'm noticing that we're not getting really a real focused conversation on the issue because it seems as if everybody is saying what they need to say to keep their job. But the bottom line is we've been fighting for 50 years. You can't blame this on Kilpatrick no more than Archer or Bean. We've been under assault. We've been starved out. We've been under economic embargo. And now that money is freed up, you want us to believe that the money that's going to be captured inside of the downtown zone is finally going to trickle out to the neighborhoods where we catch the hell every single day. And you need to know that you were handpicked to come in and destroy a blooming black democracy. And I thought that it was definitely wrong and the chickens will certainly come home to roof. Okay. Martin, I, I appreciate uh, your thoughts and I appreciate your calling in. Thank you. Uh, Kevin Orr, how do you answer that? That, that gets back to that question that I had about this, these years, decades of disinvestment uh, on the part of the state, on the part of the federal government that helped push Detroit to the brink, the financial brink, put us into the financial hole that we were in. As Martin says, uh, it's not just about Kwame Kilpatrick. It's decades of, of neglect that put us there. Um, and, and again, you, the, the solution was to disenfranchise uh, democracy uh, in a city that is, uh, was the largest, uh, had the largest African-American population among large cities uh, in, the, in the country. How do, how do, you, how do you reconcile that? Uh, let's reconcile it three ways, Stephen. First of all, let's go back and look at, at the 70s and 80s with African-American cities, and let's compare and contrast, say, Detroit with Chicago, Atlanta, L.A., and New York. And there were themes that the leadership in those cities had to decide their use. Some were cooperative. Um, Atlanta, uh, New York, and L.A., uh, whether it was David Dinkins, whether it was Maynard Jackson and Andy Young down in Atlanta, whether it was Tom Bradley out in L.A., decided that they were going to try to write their city after the riots of the 60s and 70s. They were going to try to write their city with the business community and be cooperative. There were themes in Detroit and Chicago that were confrontational. I mean, I think Mayor Coleman Young was much regarded and certainly revered in the city. I don't think anybody's going to say that there was an aspect that was confrontational. That confrontational was a harmonic with some of the counties. We all know that's well-worn. And that plays itself out over a span of years. You don't just see a confrontation. Like I said, Atlanta decided they were going to build Atlanta National Hartsville Airport. They were going to build infrastructure. They were going to build light rail. They're going to invite people to come into the city, and that city is now thriving. 
we decided, for whatever reason, on both sides of the fence, not just disinvestment by the state and by the feds, but we decided we're going to have a confrontational model in Detroit. That plays itself out 30 years later. Number two, I was in that city for 21 months. 21 months. And if it's played itself out in a decade, the city now has a balanced budget. It's now going forward with development downtown. Um, it's now being in new investment. It's now thriving on a Woodward City from businesses and operations that have been out of that city for 30 years. Now, there, there are going to be people who are never going to see a value proposition to changing the structure of a city from where it had, had listed, from people leaving for 30 years to people coming back in in the span of 21 years. And I can't address someone who doesn't understand that there's a value to the city to having that go and not keep it on the current course. That there's a value to the city with dealing with 20% of its blighted housing stock. There's a value to the city to repairing 40% of its street lights. You, you either understand and appreciate that or you don't, but that's, that's objective. That has nothing to do with the philosophical underpinnings of democracy. It's just an objective measure of whether or not you turn on the street lights and they come on or whether or not you turn on the water and it gets fixed. There's a value to fixing that. Number three, what I would say, and that's why I started the discussion, Stephen, with a cautionary tale about some of the articles in the Washington Post. This is not over. So the structure about democracy, and I would remind people that when I was in the city, there were two votes. There was a vote for mayor and city council. And there was a vote for governor, and everybody went down to the voting line, you know, lines, and they voted accordingly, and there were consequences to that vote. They got a new mayor, and it's a good mayor. But, but what I would say is suspension of the concept of democracy with the receiver isn't just suspension of democracy. It's a suspension of the rights of other parties, some of whom creditors for agreements that were entered into that I didn't enter into. That the city entered into with Fidge against Sikora, for whom you owed $1.5 billion. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't enter into that. So how are you going to pay them in the regular order? How are you going to deal with that? There were $600 million in deferred pension payments that you were given 8% paper to, the pension funds. It's like everybody says, well, vested pension rights were protected by the state constitution. There are two provisions to Article 9, right. Section 24. Uh, uh, One is they're supposed to be and the others are supposed to be paid on time. Right, and we so weren't doing that, that either. without a receivership? Yeah. Uh, Kevin Orr, uh, former Detroit emergency manager, I'm sorry to do this, but we, we need to move no to the problem. next segment. But thank you very much for being here and answering the questions on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. When we come back, we're going to talk about Lansing, the end of the year rush to get some legislation passed, important legislation with Jake Neer of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.